welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In our episode today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer starts a new series that focuses on the family. The series is called Parenting by the Book. In this series, we take a look at what real biblical parenting looks like in the home. Today's talk is titled, God's Blueprint for the Home. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around until the end and find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church. If you've ever taken a philosophy class, often the professor will start out with a question trying to get the students thinking and talking about philosophy and things that are important in life. And one of the questions they may ask you is, what's the most important part of an ox cart? And the students at that point will begin to discuss amongst themselves, well, it's an ox cart, so clearly you need a box for the cart to be a cart. So that's the most important part. Others will say, ah, indeed, it is an ox cart, but it is not an ox cart without an ox. Therefore, clearly you cannot start building an ox cart unless you have an ox in mind. Yet another might point out, well, your ox cart is just a box unless it has wheels. It's the wheels that turn a box into a cart. And on and on this conversation may go until the professor eventually kind of tips his hat to what he's looking for. He says, the most important part of an ox cart is the blueprint. Because if you have the blueprint of something, you can always build it again. Let's say your ox cart has fallen into disrepair. You can rebuild that box. You can rebuild the wheels. You can rebuild the axle. You can buy a new ox. As long as you have the blueprint, you're never without an ox cart. You know how to make the original. So when beginning a series on the home, where do you begin? You have to begin with a blueprint. There is a blueprint for the home, by the way, and I know for modern society, that's a little bit difficult to receive because people have a very different idea as to who should write the blueprint for the home. What is the blueprint for a home? For some people, it might be, well, it's just what my parents did. And that's, in all reality, what a lot of people just do. We pass on what we grew up with ourselves as children. And so my parents did it this way, so I'll do it this way. But that presents a couple of problems. One, you're married. Which family are you gonna follow? You know, that's a conversation right there. Did my parents have it right? Did your parents have it right? Do we mix and match, pick and choose here? Uh, Secondly, if your parents are the authority and the blueprint on what a home should be, what if your parents didn't have it right? What if we're just perpetuating unhealthy patterns for the home? Other people still might say, well, you know, for my blueprint of the home, culture is my standard. Just as culture develops, as society develops, we just follow what they do. And so I want to fit into society. I want people to look at how we run our home and order our home, how we treat our kids. And I don't want to stick out. I don't want to look odd. And so we just allow culture and society to tell us what's right. Still yet, there are those who will say in this somewhat postmodern culture that we live in, you're the authority of your home. What do you want the home to be? You know, so we got over, a home over here that's a male and a female, that's great. We got a home over here that has a male and a male, that's fine with you. You do you, you, you decide what's good for you. And in this culture, it's, it's almost the greatest sin in this culture is to say that anything is objectively wrong. In fact, when I say that there's a concept of marriage that is wrong, you may recoil initially at that. How dare you say something's wrong? It's for them to decide. But in truth, is it? Did you create marriage? 
No, God created marriage. And so only God holds the blueprint of the home. And when we allow man to say what marriage is, ultimately we have given them a divine prerogative. You're God. You don't have to accept what God says is true about you. You say what's true about you. You you were born a male, but you want to be a female? That's okay. And you've become God. I declare who I am. I declare what the home looks like. That is... That is attributing to ourselves divinity. And when we allow man to become the standard for the home, there is no standard for the home. You do whatever you want. Husband stays home, watch the kids, the wife goes to work, you know, or, the, or you have two men, you have two women, you have, uh, you know, you have a guy marrying a nine-year-old girl and you say, that's offensive. You're right, it is. And yet in our culture now, there's a movement to call them not pedophiles, but MAPS. Have you heard that? Minor attracted persons. We're trying to take the stigma away from things as if stigma is a bad thing, by the way. If their stigma is due to sin, God wants that stigma to be there because he wants us to repent. He doesn't want us to live in that stigma. He wants us to repent and to change, to conform to his standard because God created the home. When we allow man to say what marriage is, friends, there's no backstop to this. It doesn't ever end. It just gets increasingly perverse and further away from God's blueprint. You know, there's places in the world you can go and you can marry anything you want. Got some pictures up here. Here's a fellow, if we can get on here. Is a guy in Japan, he married a cartoon character. I wish I was kidding about this. He's standing right there next to his new bride, this hologram called Hatsune Miku, and he is evidently married to her. I'm, I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say she doesn't do her fair share of the dishes. We got another guy here, a lady here. She married her dog, Logan, this, this Indian lady. She married her dog. I got another, we got a famous actor in Peru in the next picture, he married a tree. He's not, that's not a woman, by the way, if you can't tell. That's a tree. He married a tree. And you say, these are ridiculous exaggerations of what people do. But friends, this is what happens when we take away God's blueprint and we tell everybody, you do what looks good to you. And we're back in the days of Judges when there was no king in Israel and every man did that which is right, where? In his own eyes. When we refuse to submit to a blueprint that God gives us, every man's just doing that which is right in his own eyes, and we fall far from God's standard of marriage between a man and a woman, and pretty soon we're marrying holograms, dogs, and trees. Do you really think America is that far off from that? We're not. We're at a place now where it's just you do what you want to do, and the worst thing you can do is to call somebody to a standard. But that's, when we're talking about marriage, we have to begin here with a standard. Psalm 127.1 says this, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Vain is a word that means empty. It's hopeless. There's nothing substantive or qualitative about that home. It's a broken down empty home because you took something God made beautiful and you're going to fracture it. So unless God builds a house, we labor in vain who build it. We don't get the opportunity, the privilege of just doing what we want to do in a home. Now, let me ask you this. There's a lot of Christians. We have the blueprint for the home right here, don't we? Is it possible to hold a blueprint and still build a lousy home? It's possible if I'm the one doing it. I'm not a builder by trade. It's possible to have a blueprint and still not build a quality home because we have a blueprint, but we do not possess humility. It's what, you, Ladies, it's what your husband does every Christmas Eve. 
and it's time for him to put together the kids' Christmas presents. You've seen him do it. You get a dollhouse, you get a little you know, 12 volt vehicle, you get something, and dad, he dumps all the contents out onto the floor, and he, being very confident in himself, takes one look at the picture and says, I can do this, and he just starts slapping this together and putting this together and hammering this in, and he gets to the very end, and he realizes this door doesn't open right. I wonder why that is. Maybe it's this handful of parts that are left over that are part of the problem. And then what he ends up having to do in humility is go back to this thing that he didn't build right. He's got to look at the instructions. He's got to disassemble, to deconstruct this vehicle that he made and to put it back together in the, in the image that the original creator intended for it to be. So it's possible to be a Christian, hold a Bible in your hand and still have a home that is destroyed because you have a blueprint, but you don't have the humility to use it. You have a blueprint. You might know what the Bible says, and yet we don't have the humility to follow it. And so a blueprint doesn't do any good without humility. And we have to begin here with this character trait humility before we begin a series on the family, because this is gonna be a difficult journey. It's gonna be a fun journey. It's going to be a very practical journey, but it's gonna be a difficult and painful journey. And unless we have a blueprint, a standard by which marriage is compared, and we possess humility, the next several weeks here aren't gonna do you a whole lot of good. We begin with humility. Proverbs 9, 9 says, give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Who are wise people? They're people who are willing to be instructed. That's the difference between a wise man and a fool. We're all born foolish, by the way. The Bible says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That's how we're born is foolish. How do you go from foolish to wise? You have to first admit you don't have all the answers. You come in here and you're like, I already know how to have a good marriage. I already know how to raise my kids fine. I'm just fine the way I am. If we're not willing to receive instruction, that's going to harm us later. We're starting this series called Families by the Book, and there's a number of implications with that. And by the way, when we talk about starting a series on family, on marriage and parenting, there may be some of you who think, oh boy, I may as well check out here. This is irrelevant to my life. You see, I'm single. Well, you don't know if you're gonna stay single your whole life or not. Well, you say, well, I'm a widow or I'm a widower. Do you have any children? Do our children ever call us and look for counsel on the home and family? Do you, even if you didn't do your family this way, can we point our children to God's standard? So it doesn't matter if you're 85 years old and you don't have any kids at home, but you do have children and grandchildren who look to you as a leader. We've gotta be able to point these things out to them. Maybe you're like, I've never been married, never had kids, my kids have all launched. Once again, your kids are gonna to come to you and they're gonna look, hopefully, if you're wise children, you will go to your parents for counsel. And when they do, through this series, you'll be able to provide them with good, solid, and biblical counsel. So no, this is practical for every age here today. So please don't just take the next few weeks and just check out and watch the sports scores during church. Uh, but calling it family, a series called Families by the Book also implies that there is a book. When we say you do something by the book, it means that there is a standard to which we're all called. If you play sports, there's a certain standard that your division, your area, your age group has to follow. That's the book. There's a standard rules by which all of us must play. And for marriage, for the home, there is a rule book. There's a playbook that we have to live by. And so every point that we make is going to be rooted in scriptural principles. We're gonna draw those principles out from the Bible, from the book by which we compare our homes. 
Proverbs 13, 18 says, poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. We can have the blueprint taught and preached, and we can discuss it, but if we don't have enough humility to say, God, show me. We're ignoring instruction, he says, poverty and disgrace comes to that person. We cannot ignore the reproof of God, especially when it comes to the home. Now, when we talk about God's blueprint, we're gonna go to creation. Genesis 1.27, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Marriage, you hate to have to go here, but marriage begins with a brief discussion on gender. God created two genders. I know that isn't popular with society. Society thinks they can improve on what God created. God here created two genders. Anybody who says that there's more than two genders and God didn't create it, then we know then it's man created. It's something man devised, man put together. But friends, here it says in the beginning, God created them male and female. Two basic foundational building blocks of society, Legos. Okay, they, they fit together. And when you do and you add man plus woman, that equals life. New life in children and babies. If I were a purely secular atheist, Darwinian scientist, just objectively looking at society, I'd have to look at male and female are the building blocks of life. And male plus male promotes and leads to disease and death. If I, just a purely scientific observation, I would have to say that male and female Scientifically speaking, we're meant to be together. You wanna to throw God out, that's your business. But scientifically speaking, that is the best outcome that society has to, to offer, and God created it that way. Now, before we get too deep into talking about marriage, and by the way, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna talk about marriage first, and then we're gonna move into parenting issues down the road. So if you came here looking for a quick fix for your kids, you're still in the right place, but we're gonna be addressing the home first, and you'll see why the marriage is more important to talk about in the, at the beginning, even as it relates to parenting. But I wanna give you just a little disclaimer. We launched all of our children to Children's Church, but in discussing marriage, there will be frank discussions on marital issues. Okay, so if you're at home and you're doing a live stream, you got Junior next to you, and you don't wanna have to send him to, the, to your mom to discuss what this guy's talking about, this is your warning. We're not gonna be graphic. That's not the church's place to be graphic, but we will talk thematically about marital issues. So bear that in mind. Uh, any sermon on the wedding or on the marriage itself is going to necessarily deal with some of these things from time to time. Disclaimer's done, are you ready? Open up to Genesis chapter two. You don't have to go very far because we were just in Genesis one. I mean, flip one page over here. Genesis chapter two, and we're just gonna look at two verses, verse 24 and 25. But we're going to draw three principles out from this passage right here, and it reads, when God created man and woman, then he said, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So our first observation we're gonna make here is, by looking at this, God has created a priority of relationships within the home. Now with every individual person, your highest relational priority is always God. At the top of every relational pyramid is going to be God. But he's showing that a child, while they are underneath their parent at one point in time, 
They are supposed to, it says, leave father and mother. Moms, dads, you have scriptural evidence right here. Junior is not supposed to stay in your basement forever playing video games and learning guitar and hoping to hit it big on YouTube. Eventually, they're supposed to move out and they are to leave mom and dad. But the fact that they leave indicates that there is a change in the priority of relationships. This word leave is a word that means to be loosed. They used to be bound to you. They're dependent upon you, parents. I don't know if you notice this or not. Children are dependent upon you. They need your money. They need your protection. They need your wisdom. They need your guidance. And part of that is they must obey their parents. Ephesians 6.1 talks about children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But there comes a day when our children must be loosed. We untie them from us and we allow them to go out and start their own home. And now that man becomes the head of his own new home. He's no longer directly underneath us. Now the difficult thing is sometimes when we loose our children, we let them go, we still want to control their behavior, to force them to obey. And we quote Ephesians 6 right here. Children, obey your parents. Now you're right, the Greek word for that word children there just refers to offspring, it doesn't refer to age. But other verses in the Bible indicate that eventually a man leaves his father and mother. He is loosed, he's untied from that. He's no longer bound to obey that parent. He must honor them, because the very verse that comes after this in Ephesians 6.2 says, honor your father and mother. For the rest of your life, you honor your parents, you revere them, you respect them, you speak well of them and about them and to them. But there comes a time where a man becomes the head of his own household. Now, while a child is underneath the parent's household, they're, they're still bound, if you will, to the parent. They've not yet been loosed. They are responsible to obey their parents. Now, parents give them greater, increasing amounts of freedom and responsibility. But while you're living with your parents and they're paying all your bills, you've got a responsibility to do house their way because that's their home. You want, to be, you want the freedom that we all enjoy as adults, you have to be willing to let your parents untie you and release you and let you pay your own cell phone bill and let your own rent bill and all these things. We've got to loose our children. So leaving a father and mother implies a change in the priority of relationships. You don't have to put it on the screen yet, but Ephesians 5 talks about that a husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church. And so at that point, when the husband is loosed from his parents, he creates a new priority of relationships whereupon that man is now the head of his own house. That creates problems if that man trying to be the head of his house also is being told what to do by mom and dad. That can be painful and difficult. Can parents ever do that, try to control their adult children? Try to still try to make them obey? Now, parents, I know this is difficult if you're in this situation, but at some point in time, God wants us to untie the children, to loose them, to give them freedom to make their own way in the world, to make their choices, but they're gonna make bad choices. They probably are. Not as good of choices as you would make, but you gotta let them make it. And you've got to allow them the freedom to pay for their own things. Often I've seen this, by the way, this is how parents try to get back in and control their children is through money. Can we do that, parents? We love our children so much, we never wanna see them fail, we don't wanna see them stumble, and so we keep the money flowing. Even, even to our adult children, we don't completely lose them, we keep the money flowing. And sometimes you'll get a parent who wants to keep that money flowing for the purpose of control. Can we do that? You better do what I say, or else you can pay for your own college. <laughs> you better do what I say, or I'm gonna bring that car back to me. 
you better do what I say or you can pay for your own cell phone bill, buddy, or move out of the basement. And we can use, we can use money as a form of coercion and control. That's no longer parenting an adult child. An adult child, and we'll talk about this later about transitional parenting, but at some point in time, God wants us to untie them and loose them to give them the freedom to make choices in life, but also to suffer sometimes at the consequences of their poor choices. But a father, a son leaves his father and mother and it creates a new priority of relationships. Now, a child can also violate that, can't they? Especially a young couple, they get married. Do you ever have issues when you just get married? Think back to your first year of marriage. We were really excited for about the first three or four weeks when we we're on the honeymoon and moving in, weren't we? But then what set in? Reality. Wait, wait, wait. This guy is a little different. He told me he wasn't like the other guys. He didn't make bodily noises in front of me when we were dating. He didn't, you know, he, he told me he picked up after himself. And now look at this guy. And so we conflict. And sometimes there's a temptation in an early marriage especially. We want to reattach ourselves to mom and dad. And we pick up that phone. Hey, Listen to what my, can you believe what my husband is doing? Or can you believe what my wife is doing? And we begin to complain to our parents about our mate. Now, it's one thing to seek counsel from a parent, and we should. But if all we do is call mom and dad and we share about all the things that our mate is doing wrong, how does mom and dad feel about that mate now? All you ever share with them are the bad things they do. Come Christmas time, do you really think they want to get together and make merry with your mate? They're like, this no good worthless. I knew you weren't good enough for my daughter. I could see it from the beginning. And you have embittered your parents against your mate. And so there's a time and place to share and inquire counsel from parents without divulging so much that you're inviting them to continue to control your life. And especially daughters to your daddies, I know you still wanna to listen to them and you should honor and respect their opinions, but now you're under a new head. You're no longer underneath him. There's a new priority of relationships. You're no longer directly responsible to obey father. What does the Bible say? A wife submit unto your husbands is unto the Lord. What happens when the wife has a head of the home as her husband, but then she keeps referring back to the head of her home of origin? Now you have a two-headed home. Does that sound healthy? That you have a home with two heads? And so there's, there's trouble brewing there. And so we have to be willing to be released and we can't just try to involve mom and dad in on every little thing we do and continue to share with them our deepest, darkest things and just berate our mate to our parents. It embitters them. Uh, I, I will give credit where credit is due. My father-in-law, maybe some of you know him, Gary Myers, had some good counsel. And by the way, I have, I ha I'm sharing this story with my wife's full permission. Sometimes in early marriage, we do some things that are unhealthy. And uh, when you're a pastor's marriage, we become our own object lessons sometimes. Well, I was, I was not always a great husband. I'm just to be honest with you. There was even during church planning, yes, as a pastor, church planning and working a full-time job. I was so stretched then. I had no free time at all. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I had very thin nerves. It didn't take much for my wife to upset me or bother me. She could do something very innocently and I'll just be frustrated. I'm not the kind of person, by the way, that blows up, but I am a world-class clam, okay? I will shut it down because at this point, I'm just protecting my heart. I don't wanna hurt or feel bad anymore, so I will shut it down and I will stop talking. On one really bad part within our first year of marriage, I didn't talk to my wife for three weeks, okay? Can you see that I didn't, I've, we haven't always had this wonderful marriage? It's, we struggled just like everybody struggles. And I shut it down. And this is one of those times where I started to shut it down on my wife. 
And so while I went to work, she packed up the kids and showed up at mom and dad's house who live about 30 minutes away at that time. And uh, Gary gave her some really great advice. He says, now, honey, I may get the quote a little off here, but basically said, honey, if you're here to, spend, to see us as family, you can stay as long as you want. But if you're here because you're not getting along with Heath right now, you need to go back home. And she went back home. <laughs> it was a struggle. It was a time of struggle for us. But she had good godly parents who allowed her to be loosed. You need to work this out. We're not going to be a refuge where you can hide away from the pains of a difficult time in the home. And so I'm grateful that he redirected her in that way. And so we have a chart here we're gonna throw up. This is kind of what our priority, a little couple triangles if you can find it on there. There's a, there's a chart here and, it's, and it looks like this. There's two triangles, it may not be on the PowerPoint, but picture a couple of triangles here, okay? At the very top of the triangle is God. And when you're a child, the next priority of your relationship is parents. You obey and honor your parents. But when you leave that home, you start a new triangle. And at the top is still God, because without God, by the way, your relationship doesn't, isn't on firm ground. This is why, by the way, God always reminds us, when you marry, marry in the Lord. Don't be unequally yoked. Because if you're marrying an unbeliever, their top priority isn't God. And if it's not God, there's no real assurance that they're going to continue to love you the way that they are because their standard for love is themselves. And so God is your top priority. And when, you, when a son leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, now they've created a new order of relationships. He's the new head of his home with God at top. He's there and then his wife. And then eventually when you get married long enough, kids just magically start showing up. You know, for us, it wasn't more than seven months and I found out we, we, we were pregnant, right? And, and then kids show up. So what happens to that priority of relationships? Can I tell you this with as much gentility I have in my heart? Your child cannot usurp the place of your mate in that priority of relationships. Your children cannot come first. I know that goes against everything we hear in society, right? We say it boldly and we proclaim it confidently. I had a woman in one of my past churches. She was from a previous marriage and, and had a, a young teenage boy. And she came to me you ever talk to somebody and they're like, they're already mad at you and you don't know why or like they're mad at the world and they've got a soapbox and she already had a snarl on her face and she was spitting her words as she spoke. She says, when I got married to my husband, I told him my son comes first and he knows that. I was like, I didn't even know we were upset with you. Are we, are we okay together? So that's what she spit those words out and it wasn't more than probably a few weeks later that she was leaving her husband. Is that a healthy position for that child to grow up in? I'm gonna give you three arguments here as to why we don't put our children before our mate. Your mate always comes first. Some of that has to do with the fact that a child leaves you at some point in time. Your mate is with you for life. But the first, the first reason I would not put my child before my mate is A, the marriage between the husband and wife pictures God's relationship to believers. Ephesians 5 says the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of his church, his body, and is himself its savior. And nothing comes between Jesus and his people. Romans will tell us not height nor depth, any created anything, powers, present, things to come, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Nothing's gonna come between Jesus and his church. And the marriage is supposed to picture Jesus' love for the church. Nothing comes between us. I would offer B, 
Your mate comes first because your marriage is the nest of the home. God created a man and a woman to come together because both of them are fundamentally different, not just physiologically, but emotionally. And when you have a man and a woman together, you have all of the fullness of the Godhead represented with those two unique beings. And it's the best possible outcome for our children to grow up in. It's the nest of the home. Oftentimes, my wife and I, we do premarital counseling or we do marital counseling. Somebody would come to us and they'd say, we're having problems with our child. He's disobedient. He's rebellious. What do we do? And it's not before long that we start digging and poking around into the marriage and we find out the reason your child is acting up isn't so much your child is such an evil person, it's that you've got hostility in your home. Mama is not getting along well with daddy. They're talking bad about each other to the kids. Maybe they're yelling at each other or maybe they, you know, it's the Cold War. It's Reagan, you know, and the, the Soviet Union and they're just, we're squaring off and we don't talk and we don't share and there's a coldness into your home. A child to develop properly needs to know that there is security there. The kind of security that Jesus gives, up, gives us when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. A child needs to know that daddy is never gonna forsake his mama. When a child sees that there is hostility in the home, their first thought is, my parents, my, my buddy's parents used to fight like that and they got divorced. And our child is gonna be set up with frustration in their heart and they don't know how to deal with it. And they're gonna act out of that frustration and that insecurity that that brings. And so no, we don't put our mate underneath our children so as to destroy the very nest that our children are growing up in. And then all of a sudden, mom and dad, they're, they're strangers to one another and they conflict with each other. Do you really think you're gonna raise up solid, strong, healthy, adjusted children in that nest? I'm gonna tell you here, you won't. You know, putting your mate first, sometimes you think, is there any real, does that really make that big of a difference? Go look at your prisons. Any of you guys in the correctional kind of whatever, Howard and some of you others. And I was doing some research, and I hate to use statistics because statistics are usually always just made up on the spot, but I actually looked this one up. In the United States, and by the way, we have the largest number of people of our society represented in prison than any other place in the world, and 85% of those people come from fatherless homes. 85%. Mom and dad could not get along, and now Junior's getting raised by mama by herself. And I'm willing to go out on a limb here and say the other 15% of dads probably weren't, you know, all-star fathers playing basketball in the driveway with their son. There's, you know, it might be drunks or they might be abusive. 85% of those kids in the correctional facility are there because they're with a, a single-parent family. It's hard. And those of you who are raising kids by yourself, our heart goes out to you. You don't want it that way either. It's difficult and you've been put in a tough spot and you're doing the best you can, and that's all you can do. This is not a condemnation of single parenting. You're in a tough spot. But we need to put our mate before our children so that in as much as we can, we can present to our children a loving home for them to grow up in. Your children won't resent you for it, by the way, putting your mate first. We let our children know your mama comes first. And there would be times I would go to take my wife out on a date, and especially when our children got a little bit older, the kids are like, they see us getting all spruced up and hitting the body with some cologne. And they're like, where are you guys going? And we'll, t we'll tell them, I'm going taking your mom out on a date. Where are you guys gonna go out to eat? And I'll mention some nice place I'm gonna take Amber out to. And then the kids, they would say something like, well, can we go along? And they know full well they're not going along. But can we go along? And I'd say, nope. And a couple of times they've said things like, you love mom more, don't you? I just look at them and say, yup, <laughs> I do. And you know what? It didn't create depression in them. You know what they did? They smiled. 
they smiled. Because they want mom and dad to be secure in their relationship with each other. When a child sees that mom and dad love each other, they may fuss and act like they hate seeing you kiss and hug on each other. Do you know that's one of the most secure things you can give a child is to show affection to your mate in front of your kids. It gives them security. Child needs security growing up. They need to know that this, this home unit is not on shaky ground, but that it's stable. And I would give, offer you here, why do we not put our children above our mate? The last reason, C, is we're giving our children a healthy example for a home for when they start their home. If you put your child first and your mate somewhere underneath that, it's gonna cause you to struggle with your mate. And then your child's gonna grow up thinking they need to put their child first and they're gonna struggle with their mate. And you are dooming that child to a very miserable marital experience because they've got their priority of relationships all out of whack. And we are dooming that child to a life of difficulty, hardship, and suffering. It feels good as a parent to do that when they're at home, but they're only with you. They only remember about 14 years of that. First four years, they don't remember a whole lot. They only remember about 14 years. They get off and get married. They might be with that person 50, 60 years. You want them to have a healthy home. And we want it to be ordered as God has ordered the home. Let's look at number two. A home begins with commitment. Look at the last part of 24. God says the man is to hold fast to his wife. This word hold fast means to stick to somebody, to adhere to them. Okay? Think glue. First uh, Kings 5.27 this same Hebrew word for to hold fast is used to describe leprosy. How leprosy, once it touches a human body, it's in you and it's stuck there forever. It's never gonna leave. It's, it's talking to permanence. Just don't put that verse at the bottom of your anniversary card. Baby, your love to me is like leprosy. You do that, you may as well just take her to McDonald's and just give up and try again next year. But that's what's being communicated here, is it's a permanence. Once, it's, once you're together, God has no intention for you to pull apart. He wants to hold you together. That's what Jesus said in Mark 10, verse six. He says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, these verses should sound familiar by the way, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Let me throw this little tidbit in here, not related to the sermon though. Sometimes you'll hear people say Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. He did because he defined what the home should look like. What did Jesus say the home should look like? It's a male and a female. It's been this way since the beginning of time. Those two become one flesh. So no, Jesus did speak about it when he defined what that standard looked like. Jesus also didn't talk about bestiality, but we don't marry our dog, Logan. And so no, Jesus spoke very directly as to what a home and a marriage looks like. And by the way, as we talk, just touch briefly on the permanence of marriage and divorce. Can I just acknowledge, there are many here who have experienced divorce. This message is not a condemnation of you. Quite frankly, if you've been through a divorce, you've been through all the difficulty and suffering you need to hear from that. You can firsthand tell us how painful that is. I've been told by psychologists that as far on a scale of stress, you know, uh, the death of a spouse is here and like the divorce of a spouse is way up here. It's this ongoing, open, lingering, infected wound that continues to hurt you. 
And so we speak to the permanence of marriage because Genesis did, because Jesus did, and because frankly we care about you. We don't want you having to deal with that open infected wound of a divorce if you don't have to. Let's also acknowledge too, we'll preach on this later, but there are biblical grounds for divorce. God gives us outs in certain places. And so we're not being harsh and critical and judgmental. We're simply acknowledging the blueprint. God's original intention, his best for us, was that one man and one woman come together and we stick it out. We fight it out for one another. Because if we don't, there will be pain and suffering as a result of that. If you've ever done any woodworking, I've done some. I built my wife a bed before we got married. She wanted this beautiful, like, at that time, $2,500 Pennsylvania cherry pencil post bed. And I was like, hello, I don't have that kind of money. I'm a Bible college kid. My professor, I talked to him about it. He had a wood shop in his basement. And so he showed me the ropes of woodworking and I made my wife a bed. And when we did that, there are some joints that we would put together that we glued together. We put wood glue and we would clamp it down. And my, I remember my professor warning me. He says, now when you wood glue something, you clamp it properly. That wood glue bond is stronger than the wood's bond to itself. So if for whatever reason you have to pull that bond apart, it can be done, but not without ripping off pieces of wood from both sides. And that's what a divorce is. You can separate it, and sometimes you need to. But when you do, there will be pieces of each other's heart stuck to one another for the rest of your life. There will be scars. There will be an open wound there. And so God is trying to prevent us from having to experience that in as much as we can. Number three, we're going to look here from this same passage. There must be intimacy and sharing. It says, they shall become one flesh, the man and his wife, were both naked and not ashamed. Now, this needs to be mentioned here. The two become one flesh. Just throw this out there. Sometimes people can get married and they still try to live the single life. That ever happen? Young couples especially. You get married and you have this grandiose idea that marriage is gonna be this wonderful time of sharing, but then the husband or the wife, they keep trying to live like they're a single. And they think they can go out hunting as much as they did. They can go out paintballing as much as they did. They can play, stay up till 4 a.m. playing video games. You can live the single life as a married person. You're harming your marriage. You need to accept the fact that you're a married individual and that married people don't do what single people do as much. You still have fun, you go find other couples to hang out with, but don't get married if you expect to live a single life, a life separated from and doing your own thing. The Bible calls us here one flesh. One flesh here means same flesh. It means whatever is true of one partner is true of the other. Everything you have is shared. It's belonging to one another. He says, even insofar as including, it says, the man and his wife are both naked and we're not ashamed. What's he talking about? Go ask your mother. Let's move on. At a baseline, one flesh, very specifically here, God refers to it as the sharing of physical intimacy within marriage. Intimacy for, for a marriage often is the thermometer of your relationship. And I'm not talking about people who are older and things wane over time. But a healthy bodied couple, it is a thermometer of your relationship. If you're cold and reserved in that department of your marriage, it's probably because there's coldness and reservedness in other parts of your marriage. If it's absent from your marriage, there's probably other things that are absent in your marriage because it's the height of expressing acceptance of a person. And it's hard to express acceptance of a person if you don't actually accept them from your heart. And so it, in, in a lot of ways, is a thermometer of your marriage. 
Does God, does God think, by the way, that physical intimacy is important in a marriage? Nobody wants to say yes. Nobody wants to amen that right there. Who created physical intimacy? We all know that God did, right? It's something God created. And God actually speaks to it in 1 Corinthians 7. Again, we're not gonna be graphic, but we will talk thematically on things. 1 Corinthians 7, three through five, it says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Do we need to do a Greek word study on that? We all get where we're going here? Okay. He says, likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. And then he says, do not deprive one another. If you have an old King James Bible, it may say, do not defraud one another. And that's a good and accurate way of describing it. Depriving is what it looks like. Defrauding is the actual offense itself. Deprive literally means to commit fraud against somebody. It means to hold back wages due to fraud. When you enter into a, rela a business relationship with somebody, there's an expectation of payment, right? My dad, by trade, most of my life was a builder. And when he would build homes, he would give a bid for a home and they would agree to pay him in a certain amount. Well, there was one particular lady who ran a large bed and breakfast in Clear Lake, Iowa, who might, she bid, he bid out a job and he went there to do that job. And while he was there, she kept adding to the job. Oh, can you also fix this? Can you also fix this? Can you do this? Can you do this? And there's an understanding that you're going to pay hourly for the things that I do. Well, it gets time to the end of this job and what happens? She only pays him for the bid. She has defrauded him. There was a reasonable expectation of payment for work rendered and she would not give it. That creates an offense, doesn't it? God says that is the very same word that is being used here when it says relating to conjugal rights within a marriage. He says when we refuse to meet that physical need of our mate, we have defrauded them. That when we enter into a covenant together, there's a reasonable expectation of intimacy. There's a reasonable expectation of warmth, a reasonable expectation of romance and kindness. And when we refuse to meet those most intimate needs for our mate, we have defrauded them. We've withheld payment that God sees as due to one another. God calls it sin. Now that's hard to hear because quite frankly, you know, if you've got a rude mate who is just chipping away at you and jabbing away at you and they're unkind and they're unpleasant, that's the last thing on your mind. But what does God want us to do? Work on the relationship so you can get your marriage to a healthy place. And you know what? God can restore that. If you're in that place right now where you're like, the last thing I wanna, I don't even sleep in the same bedroom as my husband. I don't even wanna be in the same zip code as this fella. Can God restore that marriage? He can. Remember, we have the blueprint. Your wheel might be broken on your ox cart, but God can fix it. Let's not just give up on our marriage, give up certain aspects and portions of our marriage. Let's bring all marriage to conform with Scripture. And there may be some, as we're describing this here, you might be offended that we're even speaking about human uh, marital intimacy from the pulpit here. But you remember the Bible says, Paul says in Acts 20, I did not shrink back from preaching you the whole counsel of God. What does that mean? It means all the Bible. Do you know God devoted an entire book to human love, romance, sex, and intimacy called the Song of Solomon? It's in the scriptures. And it's in 1 Corinthians. And it's in Ephesians 5. 
Is God concerned about the intimate lives of his children? He absolutely is because God created it. This is not a filthy thing. We need to, we need to get rid of this idea that we don't talk about physical intimacy in, in respectful ways because God created it and God created it beautiful and God created it honorable. It says in Hebrews 13, four, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So God says that, there is, that when we speak, we speak about doing things God's way, it is both honorable and undefiled. He says, but God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, if you're still skeptical here, you're like, no, it says marriage is honorable. That Greek word for marriage is the word gamos. It's where we get the Greek word gamete. Any of you guys remember biology class? Did you try hard to forget about ribosomes and uh, mitochondria and stuff like that? A gamete is what? It's the physical DNA that is passed back and forth between a man and a woman in a marital relationship. He's not just talking about marriage in general. He's literally talking about intimacy within marriage. He says it is undefiled and it should be honorable, but there are ways that we do it which are not honorable and which are defiled. What is that? It's when we go outside of God's plan for this. He said, notice that God, he talks about intimacy belonging to a husband and wife, not just a man and a woman. Intimacy is not just a gift that God gives to men and women. It's a gift that God gives to husbands and wives in particular, married people. And that has to be said because society is so accepted that we just live together before marriage, we sleep before marriage, we do these things. And that may be an accepted part of your life, but friends, can I tell you, it's not from the standard of the word of God. He specifically says fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Say, I don't like that message very much. Can I tell you, friends, the most loving thing I can do is tell you the truth? Truth always puts me in a position of danger. <laughs> you might send me anthrax in the mail or something, or letter bomb. Please don't, by the way, don't give any ideas. But it's dangerous for me to teach truth because it might make somebody out here upset. But can I tell you the most loving thing a person can do is to tell you the truth. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. They're willing to tell you what you need to hear because it's healthy for you. But profuse are the kisses of an enemy. People who are telling you that if you're, if you're doing immoral sexual things, you're having adultery on the side, relational affairs, pornography, living together before marriage, sex before marriage, can I tell you, it's, they, they're silent, not because they love you, but because they love themselves. They don't wanna deal with you getting upset with them. Friends, I'm willing to risk your relationship with me to love you and tell you what God says, because I don't want God to judge you. I don't judge you. I'm warning you about a God who does, though. God intended sex to be between a man and a woman in a relationship of marriage. Galatians 6, 7 reminds us, do not be deceived, God is not mocked for whatever one sows, he will also reap. He says, don't be deceived, why? Because there's a lot of people who are deceived. They think, well, this doesn't apply to me. Well, I'm a different case. Well, you don't understand. That's deceived. He says, God is not mocked. He, God says, fornicators, adulterers, God will judge. God will judge. He says, he's not going to be mocked. There's never gonna be a person who goes, I flaunted your ways, God, <laughs> and I got away with it too. God will not be mocked. He will deal with it. And he says, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. He says, if we reap, sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. If we sow to the spirit, we will reap life. I'm trying to help us as a congregation that we sow to the Spirit of God because we sow, we plant seeds. When you plant a seed, you get what you planted. 
You don't plant corn and expect watermelons. You don't, you don't sow to the flesh and do the, the marriage relationship like the world does and expect a godly, wonderful relationship on the other side. You don't plant corn and get watermelons. You get corn, but you don't just get the corn you planted. You get more than what you planted. So we sow to the flesh and pretty soon it grows and it multiplies and we reap corruption, don't we? This is God's warning to us, not because God is judgmental, it's because God loves us enough to tell us the truth. And so let me just say this very clearly. Let me go on record here as saying this. Sex before marriage will always do one of two things. It will either harm a good relationship or it will prolong a bad one. It'll harm a good relationship. You're going to enter into marriage with this doubt. You didn't show self-control then. What makes me think you're gonna show self-control now that we're married? It's gonna bring pain, it's gonna bring guilt, it's gonna bring suffering into your marriage, and it will prolong a bad one. Somebody you probably shouldn't be with, you have nothing in common, this guy or this girl doesn't even know God, but you're together anyhow. Intimacy before marriage always feels like love. It's lighter fluid, you know, and it burns up bright and glorious, but in the end, that's all you ever had, and so it'll prolong a bad relationship. You wanna get to see if whether or not a person is truly marriageable, we don't enter into that outside of marriage. But I would also argue here that one flesh goes well beyond just the sharing of a physical relationship together. It's the sharing of everything. The Bible says one flesh, same flesh. What is true of me is true of you. And so I think that's no more acutely expressed than in a marriage relationship when we choose to share our finances. If you get a husband and wife and he's talking about my job, my money, my bank account, the wife's over here, she's talking about my job, my bank account, my money, my 401k, your 401k, my money, yours. That's when you know you don't have a one flesh relationship right now, I'm telling you. Because God intended for what's true of me is true of her. What's true of her is also true of me. My wife and I, we share everything. She has the login to absolutely everything I own that we own, my bad. Everything. <laughs> Be not doers, hearers of the word, but doers. Our accounts. And so she has access to all of that. Our bank, I don't have any private bank accounts. I don't have any secret stashes of money so I can make clandestine purchases without her knowing. I don't try to sneak things past her. She doesn't try to sneak things past me. On big purchases, we've agreed to discuss them before making those purchases. Still wanting a motorcycle, by the way. So we talk about these things together, and we come to an agreement, which we still haven't come to an agreement on the motorcycle yet, have we? Okay. But we can go out and buy a Big Mac meal without criticizing one another. You can go out and buy some cheap little things, go to Walmart without going, let me see your receipt. We don't do that to each other, but we've agreed on bigger purchases. We talk to each other first, but we share everything. I don't have my money and her money. And by the way, most of our adult life, we've been a one income family and we still are right now. And men, if you're in that situation, I think those are more and more rare because it's hard to get by. If you're in a one income situation, can I just give you a warning? Can you not demean your wife by talking about my money? Just remember who pays the bills. Just remember who makes more. Or if your wife does work, where you constantly remind her, well, guess who makes the most money? What are we doing at that point? Is that a one flesh conversation? That's a me conversation. That's a controlling conversation. That's not creating a one flesh environment. That's not creating an environment where that woman wants to trust you and give herself to you. She feels demeaned and, and rightfully so. 
She feels demeaned in that situation. We don't talk about my money, your money, it's ours. What is true of our household is true of us. Now, it has to be said, what if you're in a situation then when you got one of your mates who's out of control? What if you're married to somebody who can't be trusted? Maybe that guy has a gambling problem. He's going out and he's pulling slot machines and you know, he's you know, big money, daddy needs new shoes. You know, he's going out to the casino and he's gambling your money away. Or you have uh, you know, a wife or husband, you know, they're going out and they're just buying stuff. They, just, they see money on the credit card and they're thinking, cha-ching, cha-ching, I've got money. And they get you in deep into credit card debt. What do you do if the one mate can't be trusted with money? That's a very real situation. I went to a church with a guy once, real smart fella. He was like a astrophysicist or something, but he put his wife on an allowance and he would hand her an allowance every week. Here's the money you get to spend, honey. That's not a one, a one flesh relationship. What, what should we do in that situation where one of the mates can't be trusted with the money? You won't come together on a budget. You won't come to an agreement. What do you do? Can I encourage you? Go get counseling at that point. Build yourself to the place where you can trust one another. Find out what's driving those spending habits. What deep underlying motive is creating them to spend money in an unhealthy way? But get counseling. And by the way, if you need counsel right now, call the church. We'll be happy to sit down and meet with you. Now, if you need ongoing long-term therapy, we're gonna get you connected to a biblical counselor. But if you just want someone to sit down and talk through some pains you're going through in your marriage, friends, we're here for you as a church. Call the office. We'll set up a time. But don't, whatever it is, whatever is harming your relationship, don't let that just continue to suffer. That's basically all we're talking about this morning. But as we bring this to a close, can I just say, as we begin to preach on marriage, it gets uncomfortable. Do you feel a little uncomfortable this morning? Maybe a little bit, but understand this. We have what Bible calls this God's perfect law of liberty. And we are imperfect people in imperfect marriages staring into God's perfect standard for the home. Does that make us feel a little awkward? It can, and it should, because God always wants us to change in response to his word. But a lot of times you start preaching on the home, you get one of several responses. One is denial. Well, that's not us. I mean, clearly it is you, but you won't acknowledge it. A blueprint without humility doesn't ever do you any good. Your home will not improve. Another response might be just severe despair and depression. I give up. We're never going to be healthy. Or perhaps, too, you just want to attack the source. Well, that's what the Bible says. But we've progressed beyond the Bible as society. Or maybe you just want to attack it as this is your opinion. Friends, as best I know how, I'm trying to exposit what the Scriptures say. We have to wrestle with what God has said. In a lot of ways, when we teach on the home, it's like getting a rock in your shoe. You ever get a rock in your shoe? You gone hiking? You get a rock in your shoe? What do you do immediately? I mean, you have like 145 laces going through your hiking boots. Do you really want to stop the hiking group? Hey, hey, hang on. Let me sit down and take it. No, what do you do? You kick that rock to like a comfortable place in the shoe where you don't feel it anymore. And you're like, the rock is still there, but you're okay. And so you can keep hiking, but you climb something. Eventually that rock dislodges and it hurts you again. Ow! What should you do with that rock? You sit down, you unlace the hiking boot, you shake out the rock, you put it back on, and you lace it back up. That's what we should do long-term. Whenever we're talking about the home, there's always gonna be a tendency to follow the rock and the shoe illustration. <clears throat> that there is something unhealthy in my home, 
But rather than deal with it, it's faster just to kind of ignore it. And we kick that problem into the corner of our shoe. And then we come out and we teach on the marriage or we teach on parenting and it starts to reveal weaknesses in our home. And we go, wow, that's really uncomfortable. I hate that rock. How dare you bring that and hurt me like this again? That's painful to show me where my marriage or my parenting is weak. And we wanna kick it into the corner because I encourage you not to do that this time. Not to pretend that there isn't a problem. Not to pretend like God's word isn't the answer. Not to attack the, the authority. Not to just attack me. Friends, when we share this, because we genuinely care about you and your home, we want you to be healthy. We want you to enjoy the home to its fullest. Take the difficult time to take off that boot, shake out the rock, and get help. Father, we pray this morning that as we study your word, we are faced with the perfect law of liberty, but in imperfect homes. God revealed to us that while there are no perfect homes, there are perfectible homes. Homes that are willing to be changed, willing to continue to wrestle with the standard, to become what you want our home to be so we can enjoy that love to the fullest it was meant to be. That it might ultimately resemble the love that you have for us as a church. I pray that this lost world might see the love that we have between husband and wife, between parents and children, and just stand back in awe and say, what is so different about your home? God, give us the opportunity to point them to Jesus. It's not us. It's not that we're better people. It's that we serve a great God who has given us a standard and a blueprint to follow. Lord, give us the humility to follow that out and to live according to what we read there. We ask in Christ's name. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, click on the link in the show notes, and we would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. If you've enjoyed today's talk, remember to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland.